Hello, pod fans. Are you ready to rock and roll? Welcome to the 395th <laughs> episode of The Crate Whoa. and Crowbar, a podcast about gaming. On the date that we're recording this, it is Thursday, 24th of March, Space Year 2022. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm Alex Wiltshire, and I'm joined by Tom. Hello. My brain's gone. Are you okay, Alex? Is everything all right? <laughs> that, that that's the highest energy intro to a that podcast. That was really overambitious, wasn't it? That was a lot. Yeah, oh, I, don't, but, I don't think I can keep up with that pace, though. <laughs> <laughs> and who's that? That must be Marsh Davis. It is Marsh well. Davis. Oh God, uh, <laughs> I need to go and lie down. That's it now. Yeah, <laughs> well, um, we've peaked. We've peaked. We've peaked. No, I think we can sustain this because um, we've got we've got we've got quite a few cool games to talk about this evening. Um, yes, uh, I've been playing uh, the one that um, you two have been playing more than I've been playing it. Uh, um, it's Elden Ring, the game that can only be talked about now. You mean it can only be talked about <laughs> exclusively, I, or it's I we're only allowed to been, talk about it now? No, there's been a, a, a government law passed. <laughs> it's the only about, one that can be spoken about. Yeah, and it's only during like, March 2022, Space Year 2022. I've put like a bunch of hours in uh, since I, I last sort of like chimed in uh, with the opinion, but I believe Marsh, you put loads of time in as well. And I think like, I wonder what you think of it now after more time with it. Well, I feel a bit bad about our our um, demolition of it. <laughs> yeah, we were <laughs> quite mean about podcast. it. But, yeah, uh, yeah, because, I, you know, whatever grapes or, or, or questions I have about it, Grapes? Whatever grapes? Whatever, Whatever grapes, grapes I have. meant to say. Whatever I like grapes. grapes. I like yeah. grapes as a term for this. The low-hanging flute made <laughs> out of grapes. What are, I'm having a tremendous time with it. Uh, that's, hmm. That should have been stated up front at the last podcast. Yeah. And, you know, however I feel about how it ranks in relation to other FromSoft games, I'd be pretty surprised if it wasn't, you know, the best game i play this year. Hmm. Um, I kind of find it very difficult to even even compare it with other FromSoft games in a weird way because those my experience of those previous games is just so rooted in the time that I played them, my expectations for them in that moment, and the novelty of them at that time. And I think just, you know, Elden Ring has this tremendously hard task of trying to capture, recapture that sense of novelty that I experienced the first time uh, I, I, you know, I encountered the bonfire system in, mm. in Dark Souls. I mean, I, I did play it, in, you know, play Demon Souls as well, but I, I quickly discarded that. So it was really Dark Souls for me that made that impression. And even then, only when you know Uncle Dicky took me through it by the hand. Um, and so, sort of like, I mean, likewise, just like the the, the storytelling in, in Dark Souls, you know, being so diffuse and the specific story that it subverts and how um, there's a lot of interesting things going on in that and. I feel like that's that's you know lightning, uh, and to be fair to FromSoft, it does seem that they did manage to sort of bottle some of that and then reproduce it in Bloodborne, which didn't necessarily kind of infuse its mechanics with the same sort of necessity that yeah. Dark Souls setting provided. But it's, I mean, it's one of the most exciting and vividly imagined worlds <laughs> yeah. I think I've ever seen in a game, and just a, a brilliant supremely literate game with a metaphysical economy that turns blood into this commodity with connotations of inheritance and purity and celestial horror. <laughs> I mean, 
it's a game about whomping horrid dogs, but it's it's very clever about it. And so I wonder, you know, like, can Elden Ring say anything more and more imaginatively than Dark Souls already did about like gods and mortals and all that stuff? Can I can I can I put in a, a kind of um, a claim on that, uh, which is hmm. from like I've probably played it ten hours. I've been enjoying it massively, but I just haven't had any time to really get into it properly. Um, also, I did a really mad thing and started playing Bloodborne at the same time. I don't <laughs> know why I did this. And I'm doing really well in Bloodborne and really enjoying it. And um, better than I've done in the past. It's bizarre. Anyway, um, what I'm trying to say is that I'm a bit of a noob and I haven't really been following the um, the Elden Ring kind of um, uh, chatting. So, so this is kind of probably the like obvious and being talked about by people or i'm wrong like what i'm going to say now you can probably discount because yeah you either know it or i'm wrong but can i say it anyway go for it of course we can always laugh at you afterwards it's fine yeah, this is good yeah, yeah so attending your view of can it can it um you know can it can it get to that same sense of bottled lightning as uh, as uh, dark souls i agree that it doesn't feel like it's as lyrical as bloodborne and Dark Souls are so, you know, so clever and erudite. But um, I'm really interested in the fact that it is a commentary on the open world in the sense that, you know, it is fully aware that what well, it wants you to go off in all any direction and have an adventure and and to sometimes be overpowered for stuff and sometimes be totally underpowered for stuff. But the point being that you've been free to do that at any time and you can always go in another direction uh and um and the themes that i've been picking up so far from from npcs and conversations and and text and stuff which is it seems to be all about a world in which as a tarnished i have a place and i'm meant to follow a single path and there's a real sense of kind of aristocracy overall there's a real sense yeah sense of class and and people being put in their place and having their lives, their destinies uh, decided before them by by the people in power, and there being lots of backbiting and stuff among all the noble noble people and so on, um, and for that to for the commentary on that being being the fact that it is an open world, I find in really interesting the fact that you know. There is a light system that's meant to be showing me, you know, a light sort of pointer system, hint system telling me where I should go. But I quickly went off in a totally different direction and ended up not finding various things that I should have done really early on because it kind of made things a bit harder for myself. But it didn't make the experience worse. It made it more exciting. And I absolutely loved discovering that I'd missed out stuff. Um, And for me, that seems to be something in you know the way that dark souls was a commentary on on the act of gaming um and so on and so on i did, did is that it is that do you recognize any of what i just said <laughs> i think you're dead right yeah i mean i, I was going to answer my own question with a yes podcast <laughs> voice but uh, I, I think yeah and i think you're, you're exactly on the money with uh, the way the open world um is is a part of the the metaphor that it's going for, but I think it buries that stuff quite deep. Actually, I'm so I I, I definitely didn't have that realization as quickly as you have. <laughs> so, um, well done. 
I Thanks, guess. man. Oh, I feel really good that, now. That it's... notion of um, that notion of destiny is central to the themes of the game. It seems like to yeah. me, based on how uh, far along I am in the story, um, like the idea that the tarnished is destined for something according to a given cult, or mm. and that that is then challenged later, and then actually you could join other groups that subvert. The idea of the, the the destiny that's presented to you, and you realise that it's all a kind of fiction. But uh, at the same time, even though you're exploring this open world, there you are being funneled down a series of boss fights as well. Mm. And the, the, so the, that feels like where the sort of narrative, the interesting narrative tension is with the themes of the game versus what yeah. you actually need to actually ex- execute to progress. I mean, I feel like it's in in that sense, it's saying quite a lot of the same things that Dark Souls mm. said, even without the open world. You know, like yeah, uh, in terms of whether you you can question your destiny, whether you do have free will. You know, what mm. do you do when the gods themselves are sort of unfaithful, when they don't honor the the faith that's invested in them? Mm. And you know, what the, what's the nature of like the heroic quest or heroic destiny? Uh, in that context, when the the gods themselves that are meant to bestow you this kind of grace, this kind of fate, are themselves, you know, perverse or or corrupted in some way. Yeah, and I, I think like I don't I don't actually begrudge the fact that they've they're reiterating a lot of that stuff to a new and I assume hugely expanded audience. I think that's I mean those are great meaty topics to get into, and I think it's worth <coughs> I think it's worth doing them again. I don't mind, hmm. um, but at the same time, like I think. Um, Initially, I wasn't as excited by revisiting those ideas because uh, the, the FromSoft games that I've loved have always tended to be very different um, in, in their kind of approach to these things. Like Bloodborne just has this completely different sort of metaphysical yeah. uh, economy. Um, but then the more I've been getting into Elden Ring, I, the more I see that it has its own very particular range of like metaphors that it's leaning on, hmm. like the, the themes of joining and breaking seem to be incredibly important like whether that's physically breaking apart or joining together actual people mm. you know grow up with all the grafting of limbs and stuff or whether that's just like making and breaking promises or vows or or breaking entire worlds like it feels like its central motif is is uh one of schism yeah kind of unjoining of established culture like it's weird like one of the basic items you pick up when you're walking over ruins is like a ruin fragment and it says that those ruins have actually fallen from the sky and there's a almost a kind of sense that there's been a giant collision of ideas and cultures that has rendered everything ruinous um right well those schisms aren't just physical they're schisms in faith as well like right. every, the entire world is divided not just into geographical fragments but into combatant factions who have different ideas about how to restore the broken natural law of the world or even mm. what that natural law should be like whether the the reality you live in should contain death or not is a matter of philosophical yeah. debate among the factions who can who have the power to make it so or make it not so um yeah. I, I just I, the more i get into it there's so many exciting there's, things in it and i feel like i think this is true of all from soft games but it had they they start with this big you know like a big central theme and then in a very kind of almost wordplay way uh just refract that theme in every possible way through all the secondary characters and the passing characters whose stories you interact with and like at the moment i'm just i'm i'm just really enjoying 
hoovering up like the the plot lines of different passing characters and finding mm. out you know what's going on with them i think the, one of the ideas that i'm getting to just now in my playthrough is sort of what it means to have a schism sort of within yourself like there are these characters whose uh, allegiances or even parentage like pulls them in different directions and there are characters who have been like literally divided body from soul uh in a yeah. sort of like kind of a whiff of cartesian dualism going on there but even then there's like a more striking element to that which is that those two parts end up may end up wanting different things and there are characters who are doubled or split in two and their two halves end up working against each other I think it's just it's just it's just incredible the number of different ways in which they've looked at the idea of sort of uh, schism and applied it in all these different kinds of contexts of varying levels of you know philosophy or fantasy. I think even like the metaphor shift from souls to runes uh, is interesting too. I originally at the beginning of the game I thought oh runes as a sort of like souls currency is is just them accepting that it's a mechanic now and they don't really have a uh, an explanation for that. But actually, I think they do, guys, because I've thought about this too much. Uh, I think it's saying that like people, or at least like some elemental part of people, are runes. <laughs> In the sense that like the runes are also ideas that are used to yeah. shape the laws of reality. Because yeah. the aim of the game is to collect these runes from these boss characters who are essentially emblematic of that idea that can then be embedded for better or worse in this one great ring which controls reality and i guess this sort of like says in this fiction that like the essence of a person is almost ideology itself or or rather the, the people you meet aren't really people so much as like personifications of ideas which then sort of i mean that feels so right in 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 like not just elden ring but souls games in general where people are just like driven and consumed by singular ideas a lot of the time and I, you know then then that then that has implications for free will doesn't it because if you're literally if if you're if you literally have your kind of reason to be written through you like a stick of rock then you can't ever escape your destiny, can you? And then there are characters in this who are like inherently doomed in exactly that way. And no matter how they feel about it, they can't change their nature or their destiny. I think yeah, it's, it's there's a whole shit. <laughs> the whole construct of um of the demigod is like mm. super important to the fantasy in the sense that they've all inherited some aspect of uh, a supposed divine power but they're all fatally flawed in their different ways. And a lot of the factions sort of map their own ideology onto what they seem to represent within their culture. There's, that's kind of like a high-fluting way of saying it. But it's sort of, um, it's almost like there's so many, it's about the imperfection of the, the core belief um, or a core text and the, the fact that you know, it, people could splinter and then map themselves onto these different demigods and support them and then uh, wage wars on their behalf uh, on just to pursue mm. an aim that they've that's been described to them that is inaccurate. And there's no certainty in Elden Ring in terms of like uh, who you choose to side with and what they represent. They're all wrong. It's all wrong, <laughs> um, mm. which is kind of a fatalism that did lie at the heart of Dark Souls as well. Um, I think that the idea that it, it, that kind of the motivating ideologies that 
uh, different demigods represent all end in ruin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And actually, like, pursuing those with that degree of fervor is a futile act. Um, I think that's seems to be a core thing that's coming through the game for me, uh, playing through it so far. I'm not at the end, so I don't know how this all turns out. Or, uh, But there's not going to be a right answer to no. The Elden Ring. Like, It's very clear from the outset that it's uh, a critique of idealism in a way. And all this, like, I don't know, it feels like it dismantles the reasons why people go to war, for example, mm. um, is, is, is a thing that's just like undermined constantly uh, because... There's a sense that when you encounter items and read through the kind of history of the place you're exploring, that no one has achieved anything through war, <laughs> really. Like at the end of the, the day, what it comes down to is are, are the kind of the demigods that hold the keys to a destiny, and none of them are like right or wrong. It's just a kind of chaotic situation where, like, the game invites you to side with some people. And actually, one of my frustrations with the game is that to get the most out of it, you sort of have to side with everyone without making a yeah. choice so far. Yeah, um, I came up against actually... last night a character that who who kind of, you'll join me and like you get this sort of yes, no answer. And like, I'm thinking, no, I don't want to, but I have a feeling that the story will end <laughs> if I, with you, it's, it's like going to end if I say no. So yeah, yes, so yes you, then. You lock off content for yourself. I think that's a, a, a genuine like a real criticism of the way the story is structured mm. um and actually taking people out of the world is always the worst option so far like even if yeah. you disagree with their uh, their take on the world um you have to sort of go with their quest line in order to further explore what the world is if that makes mm. sense um, is is that that idea of um, NPCs existing having to exist forever, because that robs you of all choice, really? Because like, I'm always going to want to listen to more dialogue. I'm more like, I love these games. I love their the lore. I love the kind of world building. And the more dialogue I can hear, um, I'm going to go for that option in spite of everything, which means that there's no real choice what I'm doing narratively. Um, is that your Goes experience yeah i think in, in order to even understand what's going on you need to kind of uh be a yes man to literally everybody yeah. which feels wrong but at the same time you just need to do that in order to understand what people's positions are so that you mm. can ultimately reject them or not um but yeah i, I was i was going to say actually, i was thinking you know about um the uh the way in which a lot of the characters are inherently doomed because of their sort of like they are emblematic of an idea which they must pursue I wonder if actually the, the tarnished are be, are essentially exempt from that. Like the role of the player is uh, is one which has complete free will, despite everybody telling you that you have this this particular kind of destiny. In fact, you don't. Like you are the one of the only kind of beings in this universe which is completely without grace. You know, without the mm. interference of God, and you've been you know the the tarnished to be banished from the world of uh gods um for time immemorial um i wonder if that's that sort of explains the the player's ability to have agency at all yeah Yeah, the player has the right to be the ultimate hypocrite in every (laughs) dramatic situation (laughs) yeah that is interesting though i that 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 kind of distinction for what the tarnished are 
that does play into what I've been thinking about in terms of its commentary on on one's place in this this universe, you know, in, in this place, you know, that 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 you are told by everybody that you're meant to do a set of things in the way a game says you're meant to do this and then this and then this and there is one path through but you're walking through a world in which you can walk in any direction and and the tarnished kind of yeah that that reading of what a tarnished is kind of supports your actual role in the game or at least what i think the game wants you to think Mm. is your natural place in this world Mm. but i but i do agree that there's a sort of inherent fragility to the 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 narrative within the open world which means a lot uh it's very easy to miss these stories uh or or find (laughs) them just broken like i I, i'm now i as you can tell (laughs) overly invested perhaps in keeping track of this stuff but there's there's like this father-daughter relationship which was was kind of important to me to follow and yet i have obviously missed some major beat Mm. in the middle of it and the game has just carried on and the characters are referencing certain events as as though i know what they are and even i can ask questions about those events and i simply do not know what they are and i feel that's like that's not intended that's and that feels like a shame um yeah uh and you know and i think that's you know the difficulty in managing what players have been exposed to and when uh, is definitely made worse by the open world. I think it was possible to miss stuff in the, you know, obviously in all the previous Dark Souls games, but it's it's sort of magnified here. Yeah. Um, I think it's true of the, like the mechanical elements as well, and you know, there's, I mean, the the game is obviously willfully uh, opaque about certain pretty basic things, um, and like, I. I appreciate that there's an intended level of mischief there. <laughs> like to some extent, I, I don't mind Hidetaka Miyazaki, the Joker God, chuckling away when you know players miss a bit of functionality that somehow makes the game ten times harder. Hmm. But I, th- I also think that the result of that in a game this broad is an incredibly unmodulated, almost random experience at times. Yep. Um, and I think that changes and it diminishes in some ways what like each area represents in terms of difficulty or threat or meaning or even like your engagement with it. Um, and the sort of jessalt of that is that um, isn't, it feels very unintended. So, I'd like, so for example, I'd say like the past 15 hours or so, like a substantial chunk of time, I haven't really known where to go. And everywhere I have been has either been just an absolute stomp for me where I've been just annihilating everything by my mere presence, or it's been prohibitively beyond my current level, and there's almost nothing in the middle. And that f- that just doesn't feel like it can be what what was in the mind of the designer. And like then at one point, I, I just went into this random cave, uh, not, not at all signposted at all uh, by the game, referenced anywhere as I could find out, and I fought a boss in there, got an item from them and now i have infinite access to items that were previously extremely scarce and the result is an instantaneous raising of like my damage output to at least 150 percent of what it was right and like and suddenly and also like loads of other builds are now viable to me because i can upgrade all kinds of items and like uh, that's 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 fun i'm you know i'm uh, i'm amused now just to tonk enemies who, who look at me wrong but it also feels very undesigned are perhaps not quite as gratifying in the sort of the the rich 
sort of like measured way that progress in other Souls games is meted out. It just doesn't, the, you, you know, if you enter a new area and you just plow through it, you, you, you fail to engage to some degree with what that place is saying. And if the sort of like the mise-en-scene of a boss encounter is trying to instill awe or fear in me and I just nobble them in two hits, I feel like something has been lost, even though as as a, as a, a scrub, I really appreciate <laughs> being able to get through things. Uh, I, I, something has been missed. And like previous forms from soft games are pretty carefully stage managed in, in some of that, in, in some ways that this game can't quite be but you know i think there's still a net benefit <laughs> to so the I open think, world i think that majestic i think that i mean i whether this is like good or not i i I'm, i don't think i can judge at this point but i i get the feeling that that they're fully aware of that experience i think you know going back to your point about um you know the frustration of not being able to coherently follow some of the narratives, and I'm, I'm sure there's an element of bugginess going on. I, was, I think there was an update last night that fixed various sort of you know questy things that you know that it sounded like that story that you told might be might have caused that. But but on top of that, I do get the feeling that the game doesn't expect you to be completionist, and it's funny actually. You know, I think that completionism is feels like a topic that 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 FromSoft would probably get right on top of, you know, to kind of, you know, what why why do you want to see everything and why do you want to say yes to everything when you also don't want to say yes to everything? Just do what you know. That feels like something they would they would play around with, but um, mm. I you know I I think I think that they. And I think that the that e unevenness, I think that that is, if not designed, is certainly something that they are would be aware of, or or you know, and think that is yeah, this is this is what we have made. You know, by making an open world game, we have lifted our hands up a little bit from from the responsibility of of managing every part of the curve that that they did in Dark Souls and whatever. And I think, I think that there's lots of stuff in, in some of the common, you know, in some of the the theming, that seems to sort of, yeah, you know, things are hard, things are easy, you know, it's your, it's been your story, but I'm at this stage in the game where I'm not getting frustrated by that because I haven't really faced it yet because I'm still kind of, I still look like a fucking peasant with a stupid hat <laughs> and a rotting fucking top. And I'm really frustrated about it. I still haven't found any fucking good clothes. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm maybe I'm being a bit devil's advocate here, but I, I think, I think, I'd be surprised if it if there wasn't an element of, hey, relax into it, everyone, or at least let's explore the idea of being completionist or wanting everything to be perfect. Uh, right. modulated and everything well i suppose there's an element where they just don't have a choice to do that right yeah and i think yeah and i think that i think that anyone smart making an open world game that's something that you think about really early on that's why i just don't think i can't think that that's a, mis- a mistake but like i said whether it's good or not is another matter mm. it's kind of interesting being halfway through it and not having the kind of overview of the game that we have of bloodborne and dark souls for example 
like uh it, those games took a while for me to like emerge like the the messages that they were trying to the themes they were trying to explore like uh you could just play through and bash all the bosses and not think about anything but then it sits with you for a while and then you watch YouTube videos perhaps like about the law and actually get more like there's something there like a kernel of something that's quite fascinating um i think bloodboard is exceptional for this given um obviously it's hugely inspired by lovecraft but their translation of that into um environments like environment design and the way that you could get sucked into nightmares etc and into places that are kind of wrenched out of time and space like a, a university hall or something like that those ideas are just amazing and really super well executed in that game and though i've seen loads of great stuff in Elden ring um i've kind of like it's it's unfair to really compare them because they're such different games but uh, do you guys think that like the 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 great imagination that's gone into the enemy design and the environment design in Elden ring kind of comes across in the open world in the same way that it does in from other games maybe not i mean blood bloodborne is like par excellence you know yeah. I don't, I, I, it's, it's hard to compare anything to that i do think i i do think there are elements to the design uh of this world which set it apart from just being sort of like rote fantasy place um yeah for sure and there's there's definitely individual um storylines within this which are really fascinating and uh quite powerful as well i dare say like there's actual kind of tragedy in this which mm. uh which when you unpick is it actually got to me in a way uh, there's also there's also a like um a, a sort of like thread line through it uh, i don't want to spoil anything but it's probably there's a storyline in this which is probably one of the darkest storylines i think <laughs> in any souls game in a kind of grim an implied sexual way and i found that actually too dark <laughs> even for mm. a for a game in a world this kind of corrupted or demented i thought that was a bit just icky frankly um sorry yeah i didn't answer your question i just went down a rabbit hole. sorry <laughs> i think that from my experience so far i've really enjoyed the sense of seeing npcs and and creatures uh engaging in activities uh in <coughs> in kind of in a space which kind of makes sense like you know the way that you get sort of zombie characters kind of uh gathered around those big fallen ruined bits of masonry um obviously mining them or getting gathering stuff from them with these overseers with them and there's a road with a with a massive giants pulling a cart you know mm. like a carriage along a road and they will progress along that road which would be impossible to stage in um dark souls or any of any of any of the former games because their areas are smaller and and the way that you encounter them is you know following the road that they will be walking along you know later on so where are they going oh they're going up the road where i've come from and you know those those sorts of things are very naturally you know uh part of of, of the experience of being there i think i've also really enjoyed the sense of um you know coming up to a a really horrible fucking bog, <laughs> a dark foresty bog thing, and being told that I've got to cross it to get to something that I know is on the other side, and you've got to go through, and and feeling that that that's a journey I'm taking, and it's me that's taking it, and you know that sense of geography, 
and self-determination uh, doesn't really exist in in the in the former games because you're on a you know you're on a linear path in those ones um and you know where the 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 joy of them is in their intricacy you know and and understanding you know how a switchback kind of enables you know shortcuts and all those kinds of things you know that is a, a real joy but it's quite and it's but it it's a different kind of joy to know that you're going to be going along this path on a journey that you chose and for the geographic places you go th- th- for, uh, between making s- geographic sense that's that's cool and i think it uses it a lot can we talk about tunic yeah mm-hmm. because uh, that is that is a game uh with switchbacks and and then some <laughs> uh, i uh, i i picked up tunic uh, thinking that it would be a kind of cutesy way to diffuse the tension of Elden Ring, yeah. like, like something knockabout and jolly. But actually, it's a lot harder than Elden Ring. <laughs> I find it incredibly frustrating, actually. Uh, There's something uh, about and- the rhythm of fighting. I just can't get it. I just It's weird. Very odd. Yeah, I'm, if I'm honest, I find it quite annoying. Um, but like, <laughs> it looks so lovely. You're this cute little fox wearing Lynx clothes, uh, in every sense, because this is just like a out and out homage to old school Zelda games. Um, although here it's not 2D, it's this gorgeously rendered sort of isometric 3D. Everything looks like these kind of crisp paper crafted polygons. Uh, and it's just, a, it's just a, a lovely environment to be in. Or it would be. <laughs> but for the fact that exploring it is just like an absolute fucking mnemonic nightmare i can't i cannot fix this place in my brain at all like uh, so the isometric viewpoint is just used absolutely continuously i mean continuously as like a means of obscuring things hmm. like vital equipment shortcuts or even like the your the intended route forward like every every area you're in uh has three ways out of it and uh you know just making it kind of really difficult to kind of map mentally and there's no indication of any order in which you'd explore them uh and then a lot in 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 addition to those three directions that you just have to randomly pick one of uh there are like usually maybe three other shortcuts hidden from view like every single screen of the game just has this level of density uh, which is, which I find to be quite paralyzing, and it's just, <laughs> and like stuff is just hidden behind the geometry, as though that's an interesting design choice. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure it is. Like maybe, like in 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 olden school games, maybe you would walk up to a boulder and you'd be able to go behind it unexpectedly, and that would be like an Easter egg, or like a super secret. But like this is just a matter of course about how this this world is organized. Like everything is behind something, and your character just becomes a silhouette, and you can walk this unseen path. And like some of it makes sense, like you're walking behind a waterfall or something. But other you know other bits of it is just like it just feels obscure. Um, and I don't know that. <laughs> I, I don't know. Am I being really curmudgeonly here? But like, I feel like I just doesn't take any brilliance on my part to find it because now I'm just nosing into every fucking corner in the game, and <laughs> like, either either I don't find anything and I'm annoyed, or I do find something and it's just like, oh well, okay, well then, of course it was there. Uh, oh, <laughs> I mean, I I don't I don't I mean I, I totally recognise what you're saying, and I don't agree. I mean, I I do, but I definitely find it very hard to remember my way around. I found a shop. 
and definitely remember going to a shop because I remember buying some dynamite at the shop. I can't remember where the shop is. I had loads of money and I can't, can't remember how to get more dynamite because <laughs> dynamite was great. Um, uh, but um, I mean, and yes, like uh, there are so many things hidden behind bits of geometry. However, uh, I don't think there's been anything behind bits of geometry which have been either super useful, like most of it's just money, um, but, you know, chests with money in it. I don't think any of the kind of um, more important stuff like upgrade materials and things like that um, have been behind those sorts of things. Um, and the really kind of surprising one. So so what this game will do is uh, you'll go on excursion from the shrine things, which are the equivalent of its um, Dark Souls bonfires. There's something that where you reset and, and, and regenerate all your health and whatnot. Um, and you'll go out into the world and you'll explore forward and you have a load of fights and you'll slowly run out of health. Um, and rather than, and it, you know, it, while it does have some bridges and things that you'll be able to, to uh, knock down and, and lay down from the opposite side, therefore opening a shortcut in a fairly Dark Soulsy way, in some cases, you'll get to an end of a path and then you'll find a secret kind of passage that is more evident from that end, which takes you all the way back to the bonfire that you were at, the shrine that you were at. And you realize that that shortcut has been there all along, if you only you knew about it. Um, uh, and, and that makes me feel, on one hand, oh, and on the other hand, fuck's sakes, <laughs> I didn't need to do any of the work if I just kind of explored every corner. It's a really strange decision. Um, and it seems to be bound up in, in the determination of the level designers to squeeze everything they possibly can out of every bit, square meter of the game world where you'll you know, you'll kind of go off and play for half an hour and switch, turn around on yourself and go back and go forth and end up uh, like in this sort of short, small valley right by, by where you started, which you can't access because you can't fall off stuff in this game. Like you can you come up to a cliff and you can't fall off it. So it's totally inaccessible, but you realize that they've just squeezed everything in and it does make the world really hard to remember. It's very torturous. However, however... Um, have you, Marty, have you got on with, um, which I think the thing that I think is just the coolest thing about this game, the manual and the, um, the maps within. Yes. Well, I see. I, I, I really like the obscurantism in other ways. Like I like the fact you pick up items, you don't really right. know what they do. And I like the fact that you pick up these pages of the game's own manual, which is a weird bit of fourth wall breaking. Um, but it's this beautifully laid out document that harkens back to the kind of NES era of these sorts of pamphlets. Um, and then it, a lot of that is written in an unknown language as well, which feels quite like like Fez, I suppose. But it's very although I would say that Fez, yeah, although Fez doesn't conceal any of its core systems in the way that this game does, which I, I, I find to be slightly frustrating. How do you mean, what, uh, what, how do you mean by conceal? Well, I mean, like uh, what basic items do is sometimes written in a uh, in in the mystery language, but, uh, and but you you can infer what it does later. Uh, whereas I don't think I think mostly though you get quite explicit um, instructions later on in the manual. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think this this stuff is really cool. Um, and I I love the way it looks. Um, but I think I'd be more into it if I didn't find 
the world itself to be this memorize, memorization challenge, which I don't like. I don't think I've, I feel like my trust has been burnt a little bit. Uh, uh, and I think I'd find some of the broader puzzle aspects more engaging if I, if I felt like the memorization challenge was right for me, or if I felt like the combat design was precise or interesting. And I, I just, I don't know. How do you feel about the combat? I've just, I've not really jived with that either. I have to say. Yeah, I've, I'm not. I don't feel great about it. So this is the combat. You um, is. Uh... I mean, it doesn't involve many buttons, but you, you once you get a shield, you can hold a shield up in a kind of quite Dark Souls-y kind of way. Your sword that you get a little bit into the game, you know, has a three-hit combo thing, and that's about as kind of finessed as it is. Um, and so what I think that what... And there's a there's a, da- a dodge roll kind of thing and a stamina system. It's also very familiar stuff to Dark Souls stuff, but the rhythm... I don't really, I just don't get it. I just, um, so for example, after there's a, there's a gap of, there's a sort of like a pause between finishing a strike on the sword and being able to raise your shield. So for example, there are these, um, laser kind of creature, like robot-y things and, um, and they will shoot sort of in like in sort of bolts of four bolts and then there's a pause and then it does it again and the rhythm of getting your shield up to 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 kind of to defend yourself while it's shooting it's just oh i just kept getting shot at because because it says this gap uh you know after making a strike between the before the shield is fully raised but there are some other bits and pieces going on for example if you use up all of your stamina um, you take way more damage, way more damage than you do when you don't have any stamina or when you do have stamina. Um, and there are, you know, you're unable to do the full dodge roll. So you kind of aren't really allowed to run out of stamina in the middle of a fight. But then, of course, you do. You kind of spam it a little bit. And it's finicky. It, it, it's the balance between finickiness and simplicity in it, which I, I have not really got a handle on that's a bit rambly that answer but yeah i i haven't got a handle on it that stacks up with my impression of it i just i just don't necessarily trust that it's uh it's working quite as as hoped because there's like like you say like with the um those laser enemies that are obviously designed for you to block with a shield and then hit when they finish firing the laser yeah. there's just something about that rhythm which feels off yeah. and, and and even other like early enemies who have these uh, you know, just sword and shield wielding enemies. It's really easy for both of you to hit each other and knock each other just out of range of each other. <laughs> yes, yes. And you, you kind of constantly have to be kind of sluggishly walking back into range and then attacking. But then what happens is something then, the... then it's got its shield back up again. And so, you mm. you know, by the time you get into striking, yeah, it's got its shield back on and you can't get it. And then that, by hitting its shield, then you're pushed back again. And now you're in this rhythm of not being able to close range to actually strike it when it's, yeah. yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Is that intended? I, just I don't, don't feel know. it is. I don't feel it is because mm. it's not fun. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I enjoyed, I, I must admit, I, I'm enjoying the exploration aspect of it, you know, with, with a little bit of a sort of sense of, anxiety about knowing whether i'd ever better find my way back again but actually i think a lot of the paths are quite linear actually they just feel incredibly tortuous i think the problem is it encourages you to look for hidden paths all the time because there are chests and items that are always hidden uh 
And so if you end up looking in every corner, you often find the 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 shortcuts oh, that you're shit. meant to find in so the you other found direction some of those 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 shortcuts well, I, I, see. I found loads of them and and it puts you into areas that are uh that are presumably meant to be explored in exactly the opposite direction and, and the rhythm right. of them just feels off as a result of that yeah I, so i'm playing I it know. i'm playing it like a dumbass you see and i'm not bothering <laughs> trying to find shit <laughs> because i found that like the chests that are hidden they just got a load of money in them, you know, whatever. I was actually getting really mm. frustrated that I was kept getting rewarded with a load of money. And I was like, whatever. But then, of course, then it disc- then I picked up a manual piece, which explained how the upgrade system works. And then, then I ne- realized I needed all the money I could possibly get to do all the upgrading that I could do. <laughs> there, are, there are some interesting accessibility settings, actually. I don't know if you check this out, but no. you can... Um... Uh, there's no sort of overall kind of difficulty slider, but you can give yourself infinite stamina, for example, oh, or you can yeah. just turn off death altogether. Oh. Um, you just, you just, your health goes down, but you never die. Um, but I, I, I've tried that a little bit, but I think actually that's uh, that actually even more breaks the, the the game because, well, for one thing, it doesn't necessarily make combat more fun just because it's unfailable, but it also robs you of that already quite minimal sense of where you're meant to be going because like sometimes the game will put prohibitively dangerous enemies in your path yeah. but actually once you become unkillable you can get past them yes. and then you're experiencing things out of like a designed order yeah. um anyway i don't know i mean um uh, i don't know if i'll play it more actually because i uh, i just ditched it and went back to elden ring um yeah i think that yeah if i if if i wasn't playing elden ring in the living room which keeps getting claimed by my children, then I'd probably be more <laughs> frustrated. <laughs> but I'm actually enjoying it and kind of posturing along on it has been has been fun. I I, I mean I personally have really it's not actually something that I did experience um in my actual life, but I did kind of like the fantasy of, you know, the import gamer of the nineteen nineties who, you know, you you'd get um a game that you could not really understand. It's clear that this game is is kind of conjuring that that fact, that sort of that nostalgia. Mm. You know, you get a game that you you don't understand what's happening because it's in Japanese and the manual is also in Japanese, but it has these you know odd sort of lines of Roman in it, Roman text, which you know in English that you can understand. And you know what on earth is you know what earth is going on and and the act of playing is is not only just to play the game but also to understand it i think you mm. know that's a you know that hits various nostalgia buttons and it, it's i don't think it's particular i think it's cleverly done i don't think it's a clever clever sort of creative act choice right because it's know. reproducing mechanics it's just that, uh, you might have nostalgia for but were probably poorly qa'd <laughs> well, but, 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 no, well i think more than that it is like literally you bought a japanese game you know so yeah. so yeah. no you don't understand what it is but um but yeah i but i think that it's really cleverly done i think that the manual is beautifully produced because they're using yeah. that um that sort of uh, uh japanese kind of roman font that you see which is not like no western fonts it's kind of serifed and sort of the the letter shapes are sort of sort of different and it really stands out to me um and there's a sort of made up script um there's even like a uh cmyk dot that you can make out when you zoom in <laughs> on the pages and the way that um i used to love nintendo um uh instruction books for the little diagrams of kind of link sort of 
going in to strike something, you know, and it's just illustrating these little things, which, you know, when you tie that with the little kind of pixely character that you see on the screen, you know, just kind of like, oh, that's what's going on. That's what they look like. And, you know, it invites you to imagine a bit bit harder about what, what's happening, you know, in the simplicity of the screen. You know, I, that, again, this is all just dumb nostalgia, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm finding it sort of quite cathartic and sort of, you know, soothing. <laughs> Try fingers, butthole, is what I say to Tunic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, t- talking of manuals, Tom, do you prefer manuals or automatics? Oh, that's you, good. See, oh, that's my really goodness. Good. You've been playing Gran Turismo. I've been uh, I've been playing a video game about the cars, you know the ones you see outside your windows, going up and down the place, you know. Uh, and I've been playing Gran Turismo Seven, and this is my first proper Gran Turismo experience. And I thought I would impart a bit of how it is, what it, you know, it's, it's been like <laughs> as a person who knows fucking nothing about cars. Um, so first thing I would say is like my friends, I'm dangerously close to having opinions about cars now. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And this is like, like a kind of 180 personality sort of turn. (laughs) So I just wanted to sort of like flag this as a kind of warning flag for what might come next. And, um, for the next bit, um, I'm not at all fragging on people who really enjoy cars. It's a really uh, and mode support as well. Like people just loved that hobby and loved just getting into, you know, tooling up cars and stuff. I am an oblivious idiot in that world. Like just to sort of like situate myself. Um, but Gran Turismo 7 is, has an infectious enthusiasm for the car as um, a cultural artifact, <laughs> almost a, a driving force that has pushed civilization forwards. Um there's a kind of like, uh, there's a tone to Gran Turismo 7, the way it applies um, everyday cars, you know, uh, the way it sort of like frames them is that, you know, it, so hmm, the best way to describe it is to describe the opening sequence where it opens up and it's like a sort of documentary feel. And it's the the first car was made. And then it's something about the Wright brothers making a plane. They made then, a plane. That wasn't the car. No, but no, this is the whole sort of like the, the way that Gran Turismo kind of imbues the car with a sense of just transcendental importance uh, <laughs> is the way it, is that it brings in all acts for engineering and relates them to cars <laughs> as a kind of way of making uh, you really kind of appreciate the cars that you're collecting. And it's, a, it's fundamentally a game about racing cars, obviously around the circuits, but secondary to that and just progression is about collecting cars and the cars are beautifully realized and incredibly accurate uh there are the scans of the, the actual cars themselves or they've been supplied uh actual cad kind of um uh versions of the cars by the manufacturers themselves like it's inc- like the materials inside the fidelity um so much care has gone into worshipping these good cars. And I think I like the cars. And <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of what's interesting about it is that Gran Turismo 
there's not a huge amount of like sort of for example cars don't tend to get damaged in races because um i think there are a lot of kind of uh requirements for from production uh, from the licenses that they're perhaps like using to actually put these cars in the game that no one wants to see a wrecked porsche right uh no one wants to see like a wrecked alfa romeo if you're working for those companies um and there's a kind of very bizarre standoffish uh relationship between how people actually race in video games versus <laughs> that compulsion to keep these cars pristine and looking amazing in every single replay um and to that extent like it's it's a i find it like a really fascinating game it's a very very good racing game like it's really like the cars feel genuinely like really different uh whether you're driving like a pickup truck or whether it's like a uh, engine at the front or engine at the back four-wheel drive rear-wheel drive like they all feel like really significantly different um so my most powerful car technically is uh like a camaro um which is just a really fast piece of shit um it's goes very very fast in straight lines but can't actually navigate a course properly (laughs) (laughs) um and it's it, the whole game is about navigating those built-in kind of like uh, you sort of like it's hard to describe. Uh, you're navigating the floors of the machine that you've been assigned as a part of a massive marketing exercise to get you to collect all the cars <laughs> from the deals that have presumably been made between um, you know, you know uh, the producer of uh, Gran Turismo and all of the car manufacturers. Um, there's a sort of palace for all the cars, which links a into the cars. It's a, it. Yeah. So you select uh, Ford, for example, or, you know, Alfa Romeo or Mercedes, um, and you go in there and it's got all of the cars there on show meticulously modeled. Um, and then if you tap across, there's like an in-stream link to YouTube videos showing the cars as well. And also, uh, some manufacturers design cars for Gran Turismo, like fictional cars that might exist as kind of futuristic visions of what a Mercedes-Benz in 2050 might look like. And that's kind of in the game. <laughs> and they've got a documentary that's linked up to as part of all of that. It's an extraordinary marketing exercise for all of these uh, these massive cars. Um, and yet... What kind of makes it really appeal to me is the extraordinary kind of like mundanity of it. Like it's this, <laughs> it's that you're driving real cars around real tracks. Or, uh, most of the tracks are real, um, I think. And it, you'll be driving a Peugeot in the drizzle. And it's very <laughs> sort of unglamorous in a way that I didn't expect um, from Gran Turismo, given my experiences with like for- Forza Horizon, for example, um, I love the Horizon series. I think they're great and they've honed that formula to, you know, almost perfection. Um, those are just like, you race through extraordinary, beautiful environments uh, in these souped up cars that uh, don't really exist, but they're kind of equivalents to real world versions. Um, but here I'm just kind of like, in Italy, driving a Renault 
<laughs> racing a Renault against other Renaults around a, quite a boring track. And there's something like actually quite uh, endearing about the fact that it just model it doesn't model the cars in their best light ever. Uh, the result of that is that um, so my um, partner Emma walked in uh, just earlier this evening and she thought I was watching a real race when actually what was on the screen was a replay of the race I'd just done. The fidelity is extraordinary. The fact that it also models just boring, drizzly days as almost a norm is kind of uh, sets it apart from other really fantasist driving sims like Dirt 5 um, and like Forza Horizon who sort of try to sell you very hard a kind of um, massive fantasy about a loud fantasy about what it's like to drive an amazing car and win things and actually Gran Turismo is just quietly happy to just plop you on the circuit in a really ordinary hatchback <laughs> and uh, let you just sc- slosh around in a, on a shitty drizzly track <laughs> and I actually really like that about mm. it like it's it, the tagline for the game is is the real driving simulator like Actually, <laughs> part of that is actually just a, a, a total lack of glamour. Like, uh, it should have been slosh around on a shitty jizzly track. <laughs> <laughs> Put on posters. Yeah, it's it's like I don't know why I like I like that so much. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, I, I totally agree with you. Like, I I am because I think that that's so you know, Forza Horizon a lot of modern driving games they kind of they need you to love them very early on so they give you mm. this kind of introductory sequence where you get to to try some of the best cars in the game in the kind of most exciting in, environment you possibly can but then even once you're into the game proper you're still driving fast cars you know it's not like mm. it's a massive step down whereas Gran Turismo um, starts you at the very bottom it always did like I played I was obsessed you know, I don't really like that term. Um, uh, I really loved the first and second. I played them, you know, when they came out, and and um, and I absolutely loved the progression of slowly getting faster and faster. You know, within mm. each car. So the old, like it was the the first dr- driving game that had kind of this sense of RPG about it, where you started in your damp Peugeot and you would soup it up a little bit as far as you could. And then you would earn enough money to get a better car and you get a better car, better car. And by the mm. end, you really did understand the difference between rear, right, rear drive, rear wheel driving cars, yeah. front, you know, uh, <coughs> engines in the front, engines in the back, engines in the mid, you know, I, you know, it, it's really, it, you know, you feel that you've earned the ability to, to drive its best cars and you're actually able to, because you've, you've really fucking learned. Um, mm. But it's taken, you know, it took a long time to get to that stage. I don't think a modern racing game could do that. I certainly I think would be afraid th- to do that. This one does do that mm. for sure. Um, so uh, again, it starts you just driving everyday road cars that you would see walking out on the street every day, and um, they handle like shit on a racing course because they're not designed for that. And then you slowly uh, build up. And you, I've realized like there's a, there is a skill gap um, when it comes to driving like super crazy fast cars where 
actually you need to be way more careful with braking zones and stuff in the way that you just didn't have to worry about when yeah. you were driving you know a Ford Fiesta or something or a Mini uh, around a, you know a track and the fact that there's such a kind of uh, difference in feel uh, in terms of the way that the cars are built and the way they move and the fact that there is that difference between the way the cars are built uh, so these cars are like avatars basically f- f- uh, I hate to evoke the drivatar thing but in terms of like the the ability of the vehicle you're in in a racing game is basically how you express yourself in the virtual environment. Mm. And the uh, there are it feels so finely tuned and carefully thought about in terms of how each avatar feels um, that there is just a huge depth. Even at like I've got most of the assists on, and I still feel that things are different with different cars, and there's a personality almost mechanical personality Mm -hmm. to how those cars operate on the track um and that is just excellent like uh, even as someone who like doesn't really care about cars the fact that i've managed to kind of capture something from the game about how they they operate differently um it is is to its credit for for sure like it means that they just must have such good driving models um and the fact that I like care about my Camaro, even though it's rubbish, um, <laughs> uh, but very good at, in a straight line, it's kind of a credit to the amount of research and kind of work that's gone into representing each type of thing, like a pickup truck uh, versus a hatchback versus a, a muscle car versus you know um, a NASCAR uh, oval ring racer. Like all those things are modelled within this one game. And I just think that's kind of quite an achievement, mm-hmm. even though I don't fully understand <laughs> uh, the actual, you know, cars involved. Um, so I just wanted, sort of wanted to celebrate it a bit, really. And the fact that, you know, it does put Plonky on a grey track. And um, you, I've watched the replays like for most of my races because... Oh, They're nice. I'm glad that still has some kind of feel to it because that was the thing with kind of PlayStation, just watching these shiny things going around track. And then it was just the sheer spectacle of it. But I'm glad that it still has a bit of power to it still. Yeah, it's, it's still good. I think what I would say is that um, its take on cars generally is a bit pompous. Um, <laughs> well, very pompous, I would say. Um, in the sense that, you know, they're held up as being a kind of like crux of civilization. (laughs) Uh, And so, for example, um, if you leave the game idle, it will show you a series of screens um, that announce sort of like uh, announce various historical events. um, And then it shuffles car facts in among those events Um, just (laughs) to kind of establish the fact that, you know, cars are as important as the fall of the Berlin Wall <laughs> or the emergence of COVID. Both of those slides Oh, no, exist. really? Did it? It's done <laughs> yes. COVID? Oh, no. Yes. Yeah, uh, and it's got like, um, uh, it flushes up and it's, there's a picture of, you know, um, the, the virus under a microscope. Oh, no. <laughs> and it says, oh, you know, this, this date, 2020, discovered here. Uh, this this is where the pandemic was discovered, and then there'll be another one that's like about World War Two or something. Also, and then in between those, Peugeot really fast. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> and in the middle it would be like, oh, Ford invented the production line. It's like, 
No. <laughs> Those things are not... They, did, like... they didn't, by the way. That was, you know, the production line was um, was already a, a concept by the time. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, uh, that's another thing about the game where, given that it is a marketing exercise and they obviously have huge access to the cars themselves, uh, it sort of pushes out stuff into... like. There's a huge amount of text in this game about like what the car is and what it represents, or and it, even just given parts that you can use to upgrade the car. And I've no idea what's marketing and what isn't. Like it's really <laughs> utterly unclear. Like as far as I've said, like pr- the manufacturers wrote everything. <laughs> like I don't know. Uh, and that's kind of like an awkward thing about the game. Even though like I think it's a, a really complete package as a racing game, and I really enjoy it. Um, I find it slightly uncomfortable as a kind of thing that, um, as a as a marketing tool, like in terms of like, I think we deserve to know when a thing has been sponsored, when we're shown it in the game, and when we're watching a video in the game about that particular product. I think like we deserve to know when that's been paid for and when it hasn't, um, and I'd be very curious to interrogate that. It's weird to know, think like which way around does it go? Because on one hand, uh, these cars are giving the game content, you know, and mm. you know it's an, it, it's important to a lot of people that the game, the cars are, are accurate, right, and that they're real world things, and they have the car that they have, they might own or want to own. On the other hand, yeah, it is a marketing device, and you know, it, BMW, you know, is is probably, you know, does well out of the fact that its cars are presented nicely in this game like the, everybody wins so maybe no money mm. um, changes hands because because it's mutually kind of productive beneficial but then yeah. hmm, i think the, the there are many bloodlines around this presentation of the of the cars like so for example what if there's a bit of text about uh, a ford hatchback that says it's shit right like is that at the behest of a competitor or is that honestly the opinion of someone in the production studio there's no way to know um or and they're talking about like real world purchases like real world products that could be purchased for um everyday life and there's no sense that like you have to relay (laughs) so so uh for example like there are companies uh, as i said earlier that uh, created these um, sort of space age cars versions of, of their brand that like might theoretically perhaps exist in the future that you might be able to drive in the game. Um, I don't see any sponsorship warnings around that. Like, not warnings, but like any sort of information about like whether they get more cars in the game because of their relationship with the game. Um, whether like a particular... Uh, particular companies get more a high value kind of exposure um and whether their cars get more exposure uh it just feels like a as great a game as it is i think as a marketing tool it's a quite obscure and difficult thing um but yeah perhaps it's always been so alex i know you played the, the first the first ones yeah i mean i think i recognize all of those things from the earlier games I mean, I, I, I suppose I, I don't really, like personally, I don't really care. I'm not, I yeah. really like driving games and I kind of like just the aesthetic appeal of a, 
of a fine car, but I also couldn't give a shit about cars and I don't mm-hmm. care about the industry. Yeah. So therefore, hey, maybe, maybe, maybe in a in a in an editorial sense, uh, Peugeot is being overexposed, but I also don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, fuck it's just fucking pojo isn't it i mean i i i personally find the, the worst thing for me is um is the fact that cars are pretty bad they're bad things you know they hmm. they are they're horrific for the environment they they kill pedestrians they kill their drivers and passengers um they 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 fuck up uh, uh urban space um they just fuck up everything they you know and yes they also allow you to get about do the shop, put the shopping in them and show it. You also get to drive really fast in them and it's fun. But uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the tension in it for me. I feel like Forza Horizon and other games that I've, racing games I've really enjoyed and burn out the series uh, back in the day, like uh, those were just kind of about the thrill of going fast yeah. in a thing and sort of breaking stuff on your way, um, and which was like a pure form of video game fun almost um and it feels like this is almost too close to the knuckle right like it's, it's almost too close to the fact that uh you know electric cars are coming and like environmental oh, hazards he, interestingly presumably it'll have electric cars in it because they will feel very different to any, any of the petrol ones Right, I've not seen any so far. I've played for a while. Um, interesting, um, yeah. I bet yeah, it does. Which is interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, it depends on, maybe it depends how much Tesla pays them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> have them in the game, right? Let's hope they so, do. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, my personal stance is that also uh, just of the environments that we live in, in terms of walking around a place in a, you know, in a town, uh, I think roads and cars have... Uh, taking too much prominence in uh just how we kind of walk about our, you know our towns and which is why they, they should all be confined to video games and so basically yeah, you should... are playing the ideal car <laughs> you're driving there is no better car than the ones that you're driving you are the car you've become the car <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway that's my big old rant about cars and this particular car game which i am enjoying like i be honest like it's very well made and uh very interesting um i feel like we might have killed marsh though i think he <laughs> may yeah he may have died it. yeah <laughs> i was going to ask you how it um how it deals with uh collision because i remember playing i don't know which gran turismo it was that my flatmate at university had must have been one of the early ones but you could essentially uh use other vehicles as means of happy deceleration to corner better that was yep. that was fully in effect in the last version definitely still do that yeah okay. yeah, you, yeah. You can, I, I i do that all the time in single player uh so it's frowned upon in multiplayer i've not played much <laughs> multiplayer but what does i mean it doesn't seem like there's actual penalties literally like a, so yeah you can just sort of you know when you, you go into a corner like super super fast and then you turn on the sticks and then you sort of like use the car yeah. to your left as like a buffer to sort of like carry you through the corner. Yeah, yeah. So that's your Camaro, Camaro driving style. <laughs> yes, that's that's the only reason I've got if so I far can't turn, game. these tires are going to turn me. <laughs> yes, that completely works. Um, so the penalty is there's a clean racing bonus. Of yeah, 50%, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 50% of the amount 
that you would win for the race is added on if you run a clean race. Um, but you could get that currency really easily in the game. So hell yeah, my crappy Camaro that is just like, can only go in one direction and never wants to go in another direction. Um, that's how I've gotten so far in the game is like, actually, especially with AI, you could just use them as cornering assists, um, which is not so good. And also it feels as though other games like Forza have dealt with that stuff better. So the thing about vehicle damage, like in these games, is that that's how you regulate that behavior, right? Like you you damage the car and then yeah. for the rest of the mm-hmm. thing, you've got a broken axle and you can't turn it as well. Like that's how other games work. But it feels as though because the car has to be pristine at all times and also in the replay, an ad- almost an advertisement for that product, um, they can't really do that. Like I've not encountered any sort of like um, damage uh, debuffs, for example, for for doing for doing that sort of thing. Um, I've not played any multiplayer yet, but surely it's got to be rife, right? Like if you've got like an inferior car, the way you deal with that is to just drive it to other people and use them <laughs> to corner because your car's not going to break down. <laughs> you know, like it feels like an obvious. <laughs> Weirdly, uh, I think that there's a part of me that likes me because I think the the thing that comes through to me is like it, it feels like it expects you to be honourable, which is actually quite it, beautiful. It does really like it puts responsibility onto you. Like you can totally do it, but it's clearly not a very the right way to do it, and therefore, well, it's on you. <laughs> which I quite like, like that attitude. That that's definitely you're right. There is a sort of like naive. Um, investment in the idea of good sportsmanship or, <laughs> and, and also just just a good loving of cars <laughs> you know i mean that's it, a, isn't it like we can't a bear to see a scratch right? on these things so there's that's that reverence held against oh um it's, it reminds me of, of everybody's golf actually the way it's actually laid out in terms of how you actually access races and things it's like um it's actually very accessible for what it is given how like you know tied it it is with the um the actual manufacturers and the actual cars involved it, it feels it does feel like so that you can sort of casually engage with um with the but the, <laughs> the honor system doesn't work on the internet <laughs> uh people are just gonna take the best route through like someone's going to min max that camaro <laughs> uh to ram into everything and destroy and just like dislodge every every other competitor and then go for the win um but you're right there is that mentality is definitely part of the game um for better or worse oh i feel really affectionate towards Garantismo. i'm not sure why i haven't bought it it's because oh it's because i feel i really should play Elden ring when i'm downstairs it's good you can <laughs> if you want to drive, you know, um a Peugeot. In a the Peugeot rain. in the in the rain. That's how the song goes, right? <laughs> Tom Petty, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that uh yeah, that's the end of my thoughts on cars for now. Uh send all of your complaints about cars to no one. <laughs> I will not be receiving them. I don't know much about cars. <laughs> and that 
with that car thought uh, is all we have um, time for this week. Um, you can hang out with us and our community on our Discord channel. You can find the link at our website, which is CreightonCrowbar.com. You can find us on Twitter at Creighton Crowbar. You can also listen to our show and its various spin-offs on YouTube, uh, which you can find at YouTube slash Creighton Crowbar. Um, the Creighton Crowbar, which is what you've been listening to, is kindly funded by our Patreon backers. If you'd like to know more about supporting our podcast and our spin-offs and our special all the special things we do uh you can visit us at our patreon page which is uh, patreon.com slash creating crowbar all of these links are on our website which again is www.creatingcrowbar.com and i'm going to stop saying Creighton crowbar and merely sign off by saying i've been alex wiltshire i've been tom senior i've been marsh davis thanks for listening, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. everybody, everybody.